Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is September the 19th, 2019. It's 9-19-19, and I think it's the last time we'll be on the air together where I could say this this year, but it's also 9-19-19 in reverse. It's Palodrome Week, um, and I think we kind of round it out right here. Uh, but actually, there's a time today when the time and the date and the, it will all add up and, and be a palindrome back and forth, and that already happened, and for that one minute, I was useless as a human being staring at the uh, numeric pattern. Anyway, what do we got going on today? It is a Thursday, so it's time for a listener call show. That's your calls to 866-65-THINK. If you want to make a call for a show like this, just do like the callers today. Call in 866-65-THINK. Leave your message. You get about two minutes to do that. Ask your question or make your point up front, then give me your details. You do that from a quiet area, you'll probably get on the air. If you don't want to use your phone or you just need another way to do it or just whatever it is, we have a thing called SpeakPipe. If you go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Contact, not only will you find all the other ways to contact us, but you'll find a button for the SpeakPipe. Mash that button, and as long as your device has a microphone, so your phone, your computer with a microphone, whatever it is, You'll be able to record a message and send it to me through the magic of the interwebs. Here's what we got today. Got a great quote of the week for, for you. Many people have no idea where it comes from. Most people think it comes from somebody that wrote it but ain't the one that said it. And almost nobody knows who it really comes from. And most people in the world say some version of it all the time. I'll tell you all about it today. How about seasoning new cast iron cookware? We'll talk about that. Making Caesar salad dressing. I, I talked about making your own blue cheese recently, especially if you want to like not eat sugar and garbage. And somebody asked, well, can you do it for Caesar? Because I'm not really a fan of blue cheese. Good news there. It's really, really easy. And I'll even tell you a little bit about the origins, the hotly contested, very angry in some circles, <laughs> origins of a salad that's over 100 years old now, the Caesar salad. But it's not Julius Caesar. Uh, how to make butter at home, and when it even makes sense to do so. The word culture makes it to the mainstream world. We'll tell you about that and what culture actually means. It's not what most people think. A listener calls in about jack hacks, and he says jack hacks should be a segment on the show, but he gives three pretty damn good hacks of his own. We'll talk about that. Uh, a question on what trading volume tells us about cryptocurrency. And it, it, it tells us some things, but not everything. Uh, Jason from PA calls in with an idea to get crypto without a paper trail, and it will show you how there really is a war against cryptocurrency by the banks and the credit card companies right now. Uh, and then we'll talk a little bit more about my garden project for the 2019 fall workshop. Remember, not this Saturday, next Saturday, those tickets go on sale. Mark your calendar, set your reminders, get on the email list if you haven't already, because this event will sell out like they always do. And I can't tell you if it's going to sell out in 48 hours or 48 minutes because it, it changes year to year. But I've had a lot of interest in this before I even started talking about it. So I think it's going to go real fast this time. So if you're an MSB member, you're going to get a chance to sign up first. And every year, no matter how fast it goes, anybody that really wants to come has been able, if you get up at the right time of day and do it, to come. But you might want to make sure you can log into your MSB account before that day and check your uh, expiration date if you're not sure 
because if you can't get in, you could lose your opportunity. And I don't think this one's going to go to the you know main audience. I think it's going to be MSB only getting in. It's generally, not always, but nine times out of ten how it works. All right, so we're going to get to all that in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and have a quote of the day. And like I said, this is a quote that people say various versions of. And most people attribute it to Teddy Roosevelt. A lot of people have no idea where it even comes from. And the reason people have no idea where it comes from is it's just common sense. The quote, the actual quote, is do what you can with what you've got where you are. Now, the reason this got attributed to uh, former President Teddy Roosevelt, who was a pretty interesting dude, and a hell of a, I like him a hell of a lot better than his later relation, Franklin Roosevelt, who ended up being president for far too long uh, and created a, did some good things and created a lot of problems we're still paying for today. Um, Teddy, on the other hand, I have, you know, as presidents go, all right. Not, not great, but all right. Definitely as a conservationist, yeah, really all right. Well, he did write this, but he didn't say it. I think when p people quote Roosevelt with saying, do what you can with what you've got where you are, or some version thereof, they pictured Teddy standing up at the bully pulpit while campaigning or while president making some great speech and saying it. But he actually wrote it in a book. He wrote it in his autobiography, and he was quoting a, a, a guy named Squire Bill Widener of Widenersville, Virginia. Uh, not some big-time politician or anything like that. Just a regular guy uh, who uh, I think makes the quote more powerful. What even makes this quote more powerful is to read the page of his book that it comes from. Now, I got a link to this book, and you might get sucked into this book a little bit by this. And I'm going to tell you, it's a, it's a decent book, Teddy's uh, Autobiography. It tells a lot of historical components and reasons for policies and stuff like that. But it's, this is one of the better pages in the whole book. But you might be left with a little bit of a cliffhanger here and want to get it. So you can get a copy of it pretty daggone cheap if you get it on Kindle. Anyway, there's a link in the show notes for it. But here you go. This is from Teddy Roosevelt's autobiography, page 337, in a chapter called Outdoors and Indoors. Here's what Teddy said and where this quote comes from. It is exceedingly interesting and attractive to be a successful businessman or a railroad man or a farmer or a successful lawyer or a doctor or a writer or a president, or a ranchman, or the colonel of a fighting regiment, or to kill a grizzly bear and lions. But for the unflagging interest and enjoyment, a household of children, if things go reasonably well, certainly makes all other forms of success and achievement lose their importance by comparison. It may be true that he travels furthest who travels alone, but the goals thus reached is not worth reaching. And as for the life deliberately devoted to the pleasure is an end, why the greatest happiness is the happiness that comes as a byproduct from striving to do what must be done, even though sorrow is met in the doing. There is a bit of homely philosophy quoted by Squire Bill Widener of Widener's Valley, Virginia, which sums up one's duty to life. Do what you can with what you've got where you are. The country is the place for children, and if not the country, a city small enough so that one can get out into the country. When our own children were little, we were for several winters in Washington, and each Sunday afternoon the whole family spent in Rock Creek Park, which was then real, very real country indeed. I would drag one of the children's wagons, and when, we, and when the very smallest pairs of feet grew tired of trudging bravely after us, 
or racing up on rapturous side of trips after flowers and other treasures, the owners would clamber into the wagon. One of these wagons, by the way, a gorgeous red one, had express painted on it in gilt letters and was known to the younger children as the Spress Wagon. They evidently associated the color with the term. Once we were at Sag Sagamore, something happened to the cherished Spress Wagon to the distress of the children, and especially of the child who owned it. Their mother and I were just setting for a drive in the buggy, and we promised the bereaved owner that we would visit a store we knew in East Norwich, a village a few miles away, and bring back another express wagon. When we reached the store, we found to our dismay that the wagon... Told you it was a cliffhanger. That's where the little excerpt ends that I have online to read you, but it does come from Teddy Roosevelt's autobiography. A lot of times I discuss these quotes of the day. I don't think I need to today. I think that those words speak more to what was really going on there when that quote was made than anything else. I do want to point out again, though, this is common sense and common wisdom. And I think a lot of people probably have said this and had no idea they were quoting anybody, never heard it before, some version thereof. And it makes me think of something I did with a boat all the way back before I even started the Survival Podcast. It's the same year I started TSP, but it was in February that I did the video, and I think I did the work in 2007. I had this old John boat, and I wanted a better boat. And all the boats that were for sale were basically crap. I decided to take this piece of crap John boat and do what I could with what I had. And as old as that video is, as crappy as the cameras I shot it with back then, etc., I do have a link in the show notes today if you want to see what can be done with an old John boat when you follow this philosophy. But I really never had any idea this had anything to do with the joy of being a parent to children and the joy of the country life. And uh, so I really learned a lot today in doing that quote. I hope you did too, and I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take our first question today. This is on uh, seasoning cast iron cookware. Hi, Jack. Aaron from Brooklyn, New York here. Question. How to season cast iron pans properly? We got several cast iron pans for our wedding, and they're not seasoning well at all. We have the chainmail ringer to clean them out, but the oil, you know, how do you oil them? What's the best practices? Thank you so much, and have a great day. So I, uh, I this makes me think of an article written by Paul Wheaton that uh, I agree with a lot. I think it's probably the best work ever done on cast iron cookware, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes today. Uh, Paul Wheaton, of course, known as the Duke of Permaculture, Permaculture's bad boy and a good friend of TSP and myself. Uh, but there is something I disagree with in that article in that he says not to bake it, um, to just basically heat it up on the stove and start cooking with it. And, and it works. He also advises that we don't buy new cast iron cookware, that we go on places like eBay and what have you and uh, purchase used cast iron cookware, specifically looking for like old Griswold and Wagner cast iron uh, equipment. And he wrote this article a long time ago, as long ago as TSP has been around. So we're talking over a decade. And he's even admitted since he wrote this article, a lot has changed. See, back then you could go get uh, an old uh, Wagner or Griswold skillet in need of rehab for like 15 to 20 bucks on eBay. Like you paid almost as much in shipping for the damn weight as you did to the seller for the thing. And if you went to flea markets and whatnot, they were pretty much everywhere. Well, word's gotten out on how good that old stuff is. And a, a hell of a lot of it has dried up. And the people that do want to sell it know what they have a lot more than they did. 
So now you can end up spending as much or more on old cast iron cookware as you can on uh, way more new sometimes. And it's a lot harder to find. So I don't know that the advice to only buy the old stuff really works as well as it anymore. So new cast iron cookware, the reason you look for the old stuff, you're looking for the milled smooth old stuff. Basically cast iron today, almost nobody makes it milled smooth anymore. So cast iron is made by casting iron into a mold in sand. That's how it's done. And that means that that's why it has those little like beads on it. And the old stuff that was milled was the more expensive because there's old stuff that has the beads too. And it does a much better job of getting that beautiful, smooth, completely stick-free surface. But the stuff with the beads over time gets really, really stick-free too. It just takes more time and more labor and more work. Now, they actually come, people say to like burn off the seasoning that it comes with. This is stupid. Paul says this. He says, God knows what chemical. It's vegetable oil. And in his article, he very correctly points out that what you form when you season cast iron over time is a polymer. Okay? So it's not coming off anyway on your food. By the way, you will not get more iron in your diet by using cast iron if it's properly seasoned because there's a polymer coating on it. Okay? Polymers are not only things scientists and labs can make. Okay? So, to me... The best way to get a good coating on your cast iron is, number one, it's too late for y'all if y'all have already followed the advice of burning the existing one off or it came without it. Leave the existing seasoning on. Number two, use flax oil to develop your purposely added to seasoning. Flax oil has an incredibly high smoke rate and it creates an incredibly hard polymer. Take your pan and wipe it and coat it in flax oil. Every square inch of it. And then take a dry towel and try to wipe off every bit of it you can. I know it sounds crazy, but you're going to leave behind a very thin layer. And put it in your oven at about 400 degrees for about 30 minutes. And when you've gotten past 30 minutes, shut the oven off and let it cool all the way down. Take it out and do it again. Take it out and do it again. Take it out and do it again. And keep doing that. And do that about five to six times. Then begin cooking with your cast iron skillet. Don't start out trying to cook an egg or anything that's really, really sticky. Probably the best thing you can initially cook in your cast iron skillets to help develop more seasoning is bacon. And then a place I really agree with Paul, the spatula you use is so important here. You want one with a rounded edge and rounded corners. And it needs to be made out of metal. And that metal needs to be stainless steel. And the only spatula I've found is the one he recommended. It's made by a company called Dexter Russell. And I use this on my cast iron, my stainless steel, and my uh, carbon steel skillets. I don't use anything else. I have banished all other spatulas from the house except for the soft rubber-like ones that you use on stick, you know, actually like a Teflon pan. We do use some, you know, stick-free Teflon-type pans as well because some things just easier. If you're not cooking at real high temperatures, they're totally safe. You can't just run in phobia of everything that people call a toxin or you'll never live, okay? Um, but so I use the, the Teflon, you know, safe cookware for Teflon style and anodized aluminum, et cetera, pans. And for cast iron, stainless steel, and carbon steel, I use the Dexter Russell and nothing else. So much so that I've thrown away the other spatulas one at a time as my wife didn't catch me. And she doesn't ever listen, so she'll never know. She's gone right now. And I bought a second Dexter Russell so that one's in the bottom of the sink or uh, buried under the dishes or whatever. I can always find one. 
So I really recommend you get this spatula. I ran it recently as an item of the day and do what I said and your pans will come out just fine. It may take a while. And then understand there are some things that tend to stick even to fairly well seasoned pans until they get to where they're really, really seasoned great. If you have something that constantly sticks, get yourself a good quality nonstick pan and cook anything that's a problem in that. Until such time as you decide that the, the, the cast iron pan bears giving another shot. And cook bacon. I mean, just keep cooking bacon. and Because that's one thing I also agree with Paul. He says the best way to season your pan is to use it. And the longer you use it, the better seasoning you'll get. But when it comes to the baking method, flax oil seems to be the best thing that I've found. And I can't fault something like doing it with flax oil, then do it as a rub down with bacon grease. Then do it as a rub down with lard. Then do it as a rub down with flax oil again. Then do it as a rub down with peanut oil. And using multiple different fats will con con combine to make different polymerizations, and eventually you'll get a great seasoning. Now, I've got some pans that you can, I mean, you have to chase an egg in them. And still, sometimes when I try to like brown like chicken thigh or something, I'll get a lot more sticking than I want. So if that's the case, I just turn to a different pan. And that's the best advice I can give you. I'll put a link to the Spatula and Paul's article in today's show notes. Jack, how would you make uh, Caesar dressing? So background is I, I liked your, your recipe for blue cheese. sounded good, but that's, sometimes that's too much for me, depending on the blue cheese. Um, I really like Caesar dressing, so I thought maybe you'd have a good one. Um, and then I guess. Can you make butter with a mixer? As a kid, I made it in like a jar and stuff, but I think I'd rather make it with a mixer. Um, any hints? What kind of cream? And is higher fat better or not? And salt? Okay, thanks a lot. Bye. So actually, Caesar salad is beyond simple to make. And if you like the taste and the flavor and the character of Caesar dressing, you probably should make your own because almost all the commercial varieties that you'll find in a grocery store will have sugar and high fructose corn syrup and other toxins and poisons and icky geek in them. And there's, to me, there is no reason for sugar in something like Caesar salad dressing because there was never any sugar in the original recipe. Now, I'll give you a little bit of the history of Caesar salad dressing and give you an idea why it's such an easy thing to make. This is hotly contested. There's actually people getting fights over this. I'm not kidding you. Like, like, you know, like modern political tribalism level arguments in, in, in the foodie world. But the person who is most notably considered to be the source of at least the name is a guy named Caesar Cardini, who supposedly, you know, lived near the Hollywood area and had a lot of actors that came into his restaurant. This guy did have a restaurant, and a lot of the story checks out. Part of the story, some of even his own descendants say that's not exactly what happened. The, the rumor mill is that one day he was really kind of down on supplies. He didn't have as, as much stuff in the restaurant as he really needed to, to handle the evening. And he has all these big wig clients coming in. So he, and he also, the restaurant's kind of backed up because of it. So things are going slower. So he comes up with this idea to make a very simple but very tasty salad table side. And this allows them to stall And it also makes the salad kind of elevated so when they're told, well, we're out of that or we're out of this, they're okay because they had this amazing salad. 
And it's just basically romaine lettuce and, 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 and Parmesan cheese and uh, croutons. And instead of the croutons we think of, the original was served with like a one big giant you know, toasted bread crouton. And this was all put together by the chef or the server at, I'm sorry, the server at t- table side. And it starts out with making the dressing, and then the the crisp, cool romaine is tossed into it, and then the crouton added. Okay, and that's that's the the story behind it. Now, some people say that actually it was a dude in Chicago, Illinois, that originated this, and I think this is one of those things. It's probably a lot like um, the quote by Theodore Roosevelt. You can figure out maybe who really said it first, where it was written down, and who wrote it down. You can figure out who made it famous, but would you think really the first person that ever said that was Squire Bill or Teddy Roosevelt? Do what you can with what you have, right? Don't you think that's something probably people said for a long time until somebody actually canonized it? And I think Caesar dressing, when you hear how you make it, is pretty much a natural thing to put together. And what happened was Caesar Cardeni made it famous, Whether he got the idea on his own, whether he ripped off the dude in Chicago, or whether it came to him another way, doesn't matter. That's the origin of it. And since it had to be made relatively quickly at tableside, it was really easy to make. And the only thing in the recipe I'm about to give you, and I got links to where you can find both these recipes online, that wasn't part of the original is the apple cider vinegar. And we're using apple cider vinegar today because everybody's afraid of food poisoning. I mean, that's the reality. When I looked back at this originally, uh, this was not part of it. Um, not even a little bit. Uh, not at all. And then something that gets left out of it, and Worcestershire sauce is used in the recipe I'm going to give you, because uh, it contains some of it, is anchovies. So the, the lazy version I have and link to for you includes anchovy paste. And the correct one, if that doesn't, which it should, So I'm just going to say that you should add about, because it's a small amount you're making with the correct one, more like you'd make for a single single salad that would serve you know two to four people. Okay, So if you're making it for yourself, you can definitely save this stuff in the refrigerator for a few days. But here's what goes in it. One egg yolk, two teaspoons of apple cider vinegar, because the vinegar ups the acidity and makes it less likely to get some kind of problem from the raw egg, which ain't going to happen anyway. All right, uh, One half teaspoon of mustard. One tablespoon of lemon juice, um, or a little less, it says. I, I, tell you, I think you can emit the lemon juice altogether, but that's what this recipe calls for. Two cloves of garlic, smashed up, and two teaspoons of Worcestershire sauce. Two tablespoons of far- Parmesan cheese, a quarter teaspoon of salt, and a quarter teaspoon of pepper. And all there is to it is mix it all together. That's it. There's no more to it. And you want that egg to be room temperature when you do that. That's that's the basic. And I say you add about uh, a quarter teaspoon of anchovy paste to that. And you have very close to the original recipe. Uh, the original recipe also calls for the half teaspoon of mustard to be dry. I think you should use a half teaspoon of a prepared Dijon. That's, that's how you make it. Now, the lazy man's way and the way that you don't have to be afraid that you're going to kill yourself is use mayonnaise as a stand-in for the eggs. And this is to make more of like some you make a jar of this, keep it in the refrigerator for a few weeks and use it over time. That's two small cloves of garlic minced, one teaspoon of anchovy paste, two tablespoons of freshly squeezed lemon juice, one teaspoon of Dijon mustard, one teaspoon of Worcestershire, one cup of mayo, 
one half cup of freshly grated Parmesan Reggiano cheese, one quarter teaspoon of salt, and a quarter teaspoon of freshly ground pepper. And you can play with either one of these recipes till you make your version that you're happy with. But the main thing is the egg and the anchovy and the lemon uh, and the mustard. That's really where the dressing comes from. And that's pretty much what the original was. And you'll notice there's no call for... Um, apple cider vinegar in the, the second one, the lazy man's version, because there's you know, you're using mayo so you're not concerned about the raw egg. Because they already took care of everything for you when they pasteurized the mayonnaise. Uh, I would say if you're going to do mayo, then you want to get something like Primal Kitchen's uh, avocado mayo or something like that. Get, a, I mean, all the mayo that's out there today. This says use a good brand, you know, like Hellman's Real. It's full of soybean oil. Soybean oil is garbage. Soybean oil is a toxin. So I, I, I'm just saying, like, since you're not going to eat this by the pound, buy a better quality product if you're going to use it. And I want to say a little bit on making salad dressings as a whole. Mixing half and half sour cream and mayo, that's basically what you do to make my blue cheese dressing. Then you add blue cheese crumbles to it and mix it up, right? And salt and pepper. That's, you know, and a little vinegar for a little tang. Um, well, you can make... You know, a very good version of ranch. You can make a great dill-based dressing. You do your half mayo, half uh, sour cream, and do a little bit more vinegar. We have a little more tang and loosen it up a little bit more. Chop some fresh dill and garlic and throw that in there. You got a great you, that that dressing and the one I just gave you for Caesar. Between what you add in herbs, etc., and how you change things up, those two can make so many different versions of dressings. And it's really quick and really easy to do, and all of a sudden you're a genius, just like Caesar was when he put these few simple ingredients together and made a salad that his name became famous for, so famous he's confused with Roman emperors. So uh, there you go on how to do it. I'm making butter with um, beaters. Yes, I know you can, and I know you can because my grandmother had, you know, what probably still is the best mixer today, um, you know, the great big, very famous, most of the most famous color of them is red, uh, kitchen-made stand mixers when I was a kid, and I remember she was making something, she had to make whipped cream for it, and of course those things, you put the stuff in the bowl and just turn them on and walk away. Well, she turned around and walked away, and she let hers just run and forgot about it, and she came back. She's like, come look, come look. And it's when I first learned how to make butter. And there's a big lump of butter and some buttermilk in the bowl. So, yes, you can. Making it in a jar, I love making it in a jar with my grandkids because they're like, oh, my God, that's how butter works. And it keeps them busy for a while. It's a lot of shaking of a mason jar full of, of a cream to make butter. Uh, the other side of it is should you bother. If you have a really great source of inexpensive or free, high-quality cream, you probably should make your own butter. If you want to make high-quality organic butter or grass-fed butter, and you're going and buying grass-fed or uh, organic, etc., heavy cream and making your own butter, unless you're doing it because not only do you want the butter, but you want the buttermilk, you're probably not saving a dollar. In fact, you're probably losing money. Because... Even when we're talking about a high-quality product through the industrialization uh, process, you can't make it as, as, as efficiently as people like Kerrygold can that sell you Kerrygold butter. So you won't probably save any money making your own butter uh, if you're buying the cream. But if you know someone that can give you cream or you have your own livestock you can get cream from, uh, you probably want to do it. And it's probably worth getting a, a more 
specifically designed butter churn. They have some pretty good ones from, what's the company? Alem Products. The ones that are just basically a big jar with a lid with a crank. And they got like beaters inside it. Those work really well. But yeah, you can do it with beaters. Just if you're getting your own cream, you're probably making a significant quantity at a time. And there's a limit to how much you can put in a stand mixer or a hand mixer or whatever when it comes to doing it. But yeah, absolutely you can do it yourself. Let's take another one. You got two in. Good for you. Hey, Jack. Just want to let you know, uh, there's a, P, uh, a public broadcasting radio show on Saturdays called Says You. And uh, they make up words with made-up definitions, and they have to you have to guess the correct definition. But anyway, just now they came up with the word hugel culture, and everybody has to guess the correct definition of hugel culture. And uh, that's for today's episode of Says You on Saturday, uh, September fourteenth, thousand nineteen. Just letting you know. It's really interesting that they, they picked that up. I, I'm not really sure I got what you were saying because you said a made-up word. So I don't know if you mean that they, they think they made the word up or they go find a word that is generally not known about. That's what it seems like based on the choice for the word culture. The odds that somebody would come up with that word on their own are pretty low. But I want to talk about what culture is just real quick here, probably a one-minute segment. So most people that have been involved with permaculture, sustainable agriculture, things like that, have heard of this, and probably large part due to previously mentioned friend of the show, Paul Wheaton. Seb Holzer is kind of the guy that brought it to America, but uh, Paul Wheaton is the guy that made America listen about it. And so what we think of culture is is burying wood, and then that gives us a wood core, which helps to wick up moisture, a store of nutrient, etc., and it does all the stuff that we think of. And people think of it as digging a hole and throwing wood in it and then just putting a regular garden bed on top of it or something. But that's not really what the word means, and it's not really where the word comes from. Hugel in German means hill. Culture means to culture. So Hugel culture means hill culture. And most likely anybody that was part of that show that spoke German would have come up with hill culture. But isn't it interesting then that, well, what does that mean? Does that mean the way hillbillies live? Or does that mean if you if you make the agricultural link, a horticultural link, and the cultivation of plants, does that mean to grow plants in the hills? Or does it mean to make hills in which you grow plants? Well, it's what it means in, in the German is hugel culture, to culture plants within hills. And it's how a lot of, if you've heard a lot about, you know, history of World War II, one of the biggest obstacles as the Allies rolled, rolled across Europe, and specifically once they got into Germany, were the hedgerows. So in all the farms and fields, there were these hedgerows. Well, if you think about it, if you're driving a tank, right, and the only thing between you and the other side, the next field, is hedges, is it really an obstacle? And the answer is no. But these hedgerows largely were actually hugelkultur hedgerows. They were hills of earth, and, you know, with 70-degree angles, and so, you know, even the tanks of the day with you know, being held together by, you know, maybe a century of plant roots could cause them to bottom out or what have you. It made crossing across them difficult, especially for vehicles like Jeeps and other fast-moving vehicles, let alone, you know, your, your track vehicles that could still maybe breach them one way or another. And a lot of them were then, you know, things like hazelnut. And then, you know, you've got like this coppiced tangle of hazelnut that acted like a fence, but that's the word itself means to culture within hills, and that may or may not include a wood core. 
when I saw the project Sepp did in Montana many years ago, he built hygge culture beds with wood in them, and he built hygge culture beds that had no wood in them, depending on what was available and what the purpose was. Was it just a wind block? Was it just to raise things up? Was it to prevent erosion? Or did we also need to get rid of wood and get the advantages of that in some of the project? And it was, uh, you know, all of those things were integrated together. So just so if you've ever wondered where it comes from, that's where it actually comes from. Now, why did he start burying wood? Well, a lot of people did. He wasn't the first one. But he had to get rid of it. He had a low-value pine that was more expensive to, 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 to remove than to bury. And the, what Sepp Holzer does with his hugel mounds is grows in them for a number of years, including starting trees that are then dug up and replanted somewhere else. And he flattens them out on the terraces he creates, and basically they are giant, slow composting systems. They are not permanent systems, though they can be in the form of hedgerows, etc. So there you go. That's what the word really means. I wonder if anybody knew that on this game show or whatever the hell it is on PBS. With that, let's take another one. This one on hacks and some pretty cool ones. Hey, Jack, this is Justin from Indiana. I had a question, which is, would a Jack's Hacks section be useful for the podcast? Um, I had been listing some oh, details, or I've been listing um, some potential hacks for our world of permaculture and survivalism and uh, figured, hey, this might be useful for you and your show. Uh, one of the hacks I have is the organic honey from Costco's lid is a perfect fit for most one-gallon mead jugs. So when it's uh, time to shake the must, it's real easy to screw on, give it a good shake, pop the, the cap of the lid open to vent, and uh, continue. Also, I've been using a laser pointer to teach my dumb turkey poults how to drink from the nipple water. And uh, last but not least, I threw some comfrey in a uh, sack cloth i'm not sure that's the right term you can find them on amazon but they're just these uh cloth pot containers and uh, the comfrey roots grew through it which was great because now i just move that little pot every time i want to start new comfrey plants in a location so uh easy easy as it gets all right hope that was helpful have a great weekend So those are all pretty good ones, and one I never even thought of at all. So let's start out with the honey one. I think that'll vary depending on what jugs you make your meat in and what brand of organic honey you're using. But I guess that works. I want to point something out, though, for the heat buildup kind of spray thing. Um, I ran into this recently as I've been doing more and more with keto dieting, and um, it was something called Bulletproof Coffee that we talked about in an earlier show this week where you're taking your coffee and something like MCT oil or butter or coconut oil along with maybe your cream. You put that all into a blender and blend it. Well, a lot of people, you know, for stuff like that, especially small quantities, something like a Nutri-Ninja is much better than a classic blender, a hell of a lot easier to clean, hell of a lot faster, etc. And uh, so you're using that. Well, the Nutri-Ninja actually screws on, like you're saying, like for shaking your meat. And so when you when you open it, it kind of has this spray of hot, steaming, sticky coffee. That's not that's not good. You don't want that. Well, I ran across a lot of people talking about how to make bulletproof coffee on YouTube, and what they're like is, well, I let my coffee cool down because I don't want it to spray all over the place. And I'm like, yeah, I like my coffee hot. So all I do, and you can do this with your mead when you're shaking it too. I just take a, a dish rag and put it over the lid when I open it, and it sprays into the dish rag. It's like spilling in the sink. It doesn't even count, right? So there's a little addition on that one. On the uh, on the laser pointer, 
to get turkey poults to use the waterer. Flipping brilliant. That is a hack. Because and get them to eat too. Because turkeys are stupid. Turkeys are stupid smart. And what I mean by that is what they know they know really well. But poults especially, they learn through mimicry. So what I've always done to get my poults eating is I take my finger and I pretend my finger's pecking food. And once one or two poults start pecking, all the poults start pecking. Well, in the wild, of course, mommy pecks, and they mimic mommy. And mimicry is one of the main ways that poultry of all kinds learn, but some of them are a little slower on the bus, and that's the, the turkey poult compared to the duck or the chicken. So another hack I've heard of people doing is they always raise a few baby chickens with their poults. The only thing with that is as those poults start to outgrow those chickens, you need to get them separated because young toms get really aggressive really fast, and they will plumb beat a chicken to death. Sometimes they beat their, their litter mates to death, too. We've had problems with that but for another show. Um, but really, really great because everything I've ever put a laser pointer from starts pecking at it. So if you can get them to peck food, peck water, brilliant. The last one, this is a lot like the quote in the Caesar salad dressing. So is that your hack? Is that a hack you learned? Maybe it's someone you came up with on your own. Nick Ferguson is the first person I ever heard talk about this. He called it a comfrey tractor, and he just had a pot that he was drawing comfrey in. And the pot, of course, had holes for drainage. And he had left that pot sit for a really long time, and he's like, I need to move the pot. So he goes to pick the pot up, the pot won't move. So he's trying to get the pot loose, and finally he just twists the pot. And then he realizes there's comfrey roots in the ground. So he kicks a little dirt on top of him, comes back a few days later, and new greens are coming up. And he's like, wow, I can make comfrey everywhere. Just set the pot down and let it grow. And so I think that's, that's one that's probably been done a bunch of times a bunch of different ways. Probably everybody figured it out by accident. But it's definitely a valid one. Now, as far as Jack Hacks, if we're going to do what you sound like you're doing, maybe we're only calling Jack's Hacks because my name rhymes with hack. Jack and hack, right? What about audience hacks, TSP hacks that we put out on the show? I'd love to hear any of y'all's hacks at any time. Call in or write in. These are great. I'd love to hear more. If you have some, you know, you can comment in the show notes or whatever, but... If you actually send them in for a show with TSPC in the subject line or you call the think line, in fact, how about that? How about I get a few of you guys? I know you guys got some freaking hacks. Pick up the phone, 866-65-THINK, and give us some hacks. And here's one of the reasons that I really think this is a good idea. Several people in episode 2500 that called into the jerk show and said what TSP has meant to them actually mentioned this in a way. Said something like, people are always like, how do you know all this random shit? And they say, because I listen to Jack on TSP. See, you don't really listen to me. You listen to me, you listen to the audience, you listen to the guests, and you listen to the expert counsel. And the amount of like modern renaissance man knowledge that creates for people is massive. And that's what I'm trying to do with this show. Re-educate America. Not the re-education that you hear about in 1984, but the re-education of empowered knowledge. And a lot of that is simple, practical, how-to-do-shit things. So I want your hacks. Call in, 866-65-THINK. Give me your hacks. I want some hacks for next week. Surely you guys have some other ones. Those aren't the only three in the world. With that, let's take another one. This one on ARK cryptocurrency, and really it's about cryptocurrency in general, and a trading strategy and something that gives you knowledge about trading patterns. Hello, Jack. This is the dad from Healthy Family Variety Channel on YouTube. And I have a question about cryptocurrencies, uh, about ARK and the... 24-hour trade volume. Uh, the question is, how important or how much of a sign does the 24-hour trade volume play on cryptocurrencies? So 
So I know that the market was had gone up, it's gone way down and everything. And the reason I'm asking is because I'm much more familiar with and have been active with the cryptocurrency STEAM, S-T-E-E-M. And whenever you mentioned ARC, I went and looked it up. And one thing that uh, stood out to me was the trade volume. It's really low. I looked at it today. It's 430000 And then I looked at what it was for STEAM, and it's 460000 24-hour uh, trade volume in U.S. dollars. And when I look at other cryptocurrencies, even ones that I don't think are as big or as significant, theirs is much higher, 2 million, 3 million, 20 million, and then you get to the big guns, you know, 100 million and up. So does it play a big deal? Should we look at that to judge the longevity of a currency? The other thing was um, I saw that my Brave attention tokens I had earned with the Brave browser were expiring, so I sent you 30 of them. Uh, hopefully that tip little tip helps you out. Take care. Thanks for all you do. So I will address the fact that you're asking about ARC, but trading volume really is a technical analysis uh, piece of information that can be applied to any security as it's being traded. Um, all that means is how much of whatever it is was bought and sold on exchanges during a given period of time, in this case a 24-hour daily volume. So that means that let's say you decide you want to buy um, MSB from me for 50 bucks, and you know I like ARC, and say, Jack, will you take ARC for MSB? And I say, of course. So you send me 50 bucks of ARC, and a, a thousand transactions like that go by in a day. Uh, average transaction of $50, $50,000 in trading volume. It's not trading volume. It will not appear anywhere, any place that that. Currency changed hands. So trading volume is only the thing being exchanged for some other thing. So that means I've got ARC and I buy Bitcoin with it. I've got ARC and I go to Tether, a U.S. dollar coin. I got ARC and I sell it for cash uh, on an exchange that takes that will give me cash for my ARC. That's that's all that it means. So if you're using Shapeshift, that's technically a change, right? Or Changely is an exchange. Uh, Kraken is an exchange. Bitrix is an exchange. So what these uh, services do that give you technical information on cryptocurrency, they do their best to have the data that comes from all of the, the major exchanges and say this is how much it was exchanged. Adding to why the dollar value of ARC exchange would be relatively low on any given day is that ARC's currently trading under a quarter a unit. So if ARC was at its all-time high of around 10 bucks, it would be trading it, the, the volume at the same quantity would be much higher, right? So even a dollar, it would be four times what it is. So ARC has really been pushed down. And again, ARC is one of those Hail Mary, like, I think this could be something pretty good one day to have. So it is it is the Vegas money, and it's the Vegas money for the craps table on top of everything else, right? Uh, versus maybe the Vegas money to play poker with. At least poker, you got a fair shake, right? In, in, in craps, it's all random chance. So it's the, 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 the gambling of the gambling money that goes into something like this. But then let's look at why... Volume would be relatively low on top of what I just said. And that is that ARC operates in a proof-of-stake model, which lends itself to holding. By holding ARC, I get more ARC every day. 
I don't have a lot of incentive to sell my ARC. Also, ARC came way down in price. So a lot of people that are holding ARC bought it when it was a lot more expensive. Buy high and sell low is not a good pattern, right? And when you look at it trading at like 20, 20 to 25 cents and banging around in there, you know, unless I have a real shitload of it, I don't have a lot to lose at this point. I might as well hold it. So I think between the fact that it is down from its highs, with the, you know, the whole altcoin market coming down, and the fact that people earn a return by holding it, you're, you're, you're in a place where not a lot of it will transpire. I would bet a lot of the exchanged ARC comes from people being paid in it, either merchants accepting it or people doing work for the ARC project. All the people that work for the ARC project get paid in ARC. So if you code for them, do programming for them, do marketing for them, if you're an employee of ARC, because ARC is actually a company founded and based in France, right? The cryptocurrency is its own thing, but there is a group of people that run and manage the ARC project, and they pay all their employees in ARC. So when those people have to pay bills or whatever, they'll sell their ARC so that they, if their landlord doesn't take uh, ARC for rent, for instance, they'll sell ARC to do so. So how that relates into... The value is the, obviously the more volume, the more people buying it, the less, the, the more value that there'll be per unit if, there, the, if demand exceeds supply. A high volume is not necessarily always good, though. You want to see a stock crash, watch when the trading volume goes really, really high. Because that means people are dumping it, right? So it's not as easy as an on-off switch. It's not binary, like high volume is good, low volume is bad. Why is the volume high? Because so many people want to buy it, and it's driving the price up. Therefore, people that didn't want to sell are like, shit, I'll take that much for it. Because remember, even a currency like ARK that has a much larger circulating supply than Bitcoin, there is a limit. If more people want ARK tomorrow than today, the nodes that are forging ARK, which is sort of like mining it, that all the proof-of-stake people are participating, they don't make more just because people want more. There is still a finite amount. So that's how that all plays, and it's, it's a good number to know. And honestly, ARK is not a high-demand cryptocurrency. When you're, you're looking at daily volume of about, well, I think you said $800,000. However, when a cryptocurrency is trading at a, a quarter or less, and it's doing that kind of volume, that is a large number of units. And my hope of hopes for ARK is that if we get another rally of the altcoin market. So if I say rally of the altcoins, I mean we're going beyond Ethereum and Litecoin. We're going to, you know, and, and Dash, like the really big well-known ones, the second tier ones. If you get a rally of that, which that depends on whether people come back to crypto and start chasing the gains again, um, The first thing that happens is people realize, well, Bitcoin's over ten thousand bucks. I mean, there's only you know, if it goes to twenty eight thousand, which is huge, I only double my money. But if I buy a dollar cryptocurrency, it goes to ten bucks. Well, that logic's flawed or not doesn't matter. That's how people think. So money then starts pouring into those secondary markets. Now, a shitload of those secondary markets are gone, thank God, because a lot of those projects were nothing but somebody spun up a clone and managed to get it listed somewhere, right? And then all the rising tide floated all boats. But this time around, if you go into it and you say, well, what's a, what's a good deal and, and is active? I don't know another project more active than ARC. So I'm more interested in ARC and what ARC can do and what ARC enables and the fact that the ARC project is putting out upgrades and new things every single day. 
So if we get, if, big-ass two-letter word, if we get a revival of the altcoin market, I can't see ARK not going to something like somewhere between $5 and $20, which when you got a thing trading at a quarter is a hell of a lot to, to gain. Then you add on the fact that if you're holding about 4,000-ish ARK, you're making about one ARK a day in proof of stake without tying your money up in any way. All you do is vote a delegate. That's all you do. You're just holding it in the ARC wallet and vote a delegate. And you get, and that's again, that's part of why that trading volume is low because if I'm getting ARC for just holding ARC, and it's, it, it's a, it's, it works out to about 11% ROI. So if ARC stays where it is and I just hold it for a year, I still made 11% on my money. Where if Bitcoin stays where it is and I hold it for a year, I make nothing. You see what I'm saying? And then, If we have a gain later on, I have a gain on all that I held plus all that I gained. So that's part of why I think the trading volume is low, but it is not a high-demand currency. That either spells doom or an opportunity. Again, the gambling money of the gambling money. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Just follow up on that uh, question on converting cash to crypto. Now, I'm going to give the caveat that I haven't tried this, but, you know, I've needed to be able to pay online with stuff, and I go to my grocery store, and I can buy a $300 Visa prepaid card. I think there's like a $5 activation fee on a lot of them, but boom, that's less than 10%, right? Boom, you've got a Visa card, and even if you don't find a, you know, a purchase medium that will allow you to use a unattached Visa card, you could probably dump that into a PayPal account and, you know, add it up and then do a purchase through something that will take, hey, PayPal, you know, you don't, you're not using a card. You've already got that as credit on PayPal. So that may be another option for moving cash right into crypto anonymously. So here's the multiple problems with that. Pretty much all the major banks have shut down credit cards for the purpose of purchasing cryptocurrency. So you kind of hit on that, that, yeah, it probably won't work. So in general, um, they, they won't do it. And they have two reasons for it. One, they hate cryptocurrency. I mean, cryptocurrency is a direct competitor with the banks. And they have a lot of leverage on what they will and what they will not accept with a credit card purchase because most credit cards come with consumer protection. So unlike your checking account where you write a check for whatever the hell you want, buddy, because it's your money, and if you write a check for some shit, it's between you and the person you wrote the check for to, and if you want to get your money back, you have to go to the, the, the court system or somehow seek some other form of retribution. Where if I buy something with a credit card and they're supposed to mail me a TV and my TV doesn't show up, then that seller uh, is on the hook with the credit card company. And long before they rectify things, the credit card company gives me my money back. Well, if you think about something like Bitcoin, if I buy Bitcoin with credit cards, I didn't get my Bitcoin. That puts a lot of liability on a credit card company. So I, I understand to a degree why they've done that. And they can use it as justification even when it shouldn't be. Because there would be nothing that says, hey, look, we don't offer consumer credit protection on the purchase of cryptocurrency. So you're on your own if you buy that. But you can still use your credit card because, you know, what have you. But if you think about it another way, they have even more justification for this approach. 
Now, they don't with a prepaid card, but it still functions through the Visa system, doesn't it? So they can do this. Because the prepaid card should mitigate both these. As far as I know, prepaid card doesn't change it. You won't be able to use it to buy cryptocurrency um, from an exchange. Okay? Which ain't going to matter because the cryptocurrency ain't going to let you, uh, exchange won't let you buy it until they have your ID anyway. All right? So it still doesn't matter. But the other problem is, let's say that I want to defraud Visa. And let's say the Visa people are so stupid they give me $50,000 worth of credit. I go buy $50,000 worth of Bitcoin and don't pay my bill. How do they get their money back? So whenever you get a credit card, you'll often see that they'll say you have X amount of purchases you can make, and you can have so much of it, a percentage of it, in what they call a cash advance. So not everything can be paid for with a credit card. If you want to talk about a way to commit fraud, if you can get a credit card, buy Bitcoin with it, and send it off into the Neverland, don't nobody have any way of getting it out of you. There's no collateral. And if I steal your credit card information and manage to successfully make a Bitcoin uh, purchase, the credit card company's on the hook to you because it was a fraudulent purchase, and I got your Bitcoin, and nobody can do jack diddly shit to get the money back from me. So you can see why they would do this from a protection standpoint beyond the fact that they hate cryptocurrency. The other side of it, well, then maybe you could charge up your, your PayPal account with it and use a PayPal account to buy cryptocurrency. As far as I know, nobody will sell you on an exchange cryptocurrency in, in, for PayPal because PayPal won't do it either for the same reasons. PayPal is even bigger a problem because PayPal definitely has buyer protections. So, yeah. And then the buy, the seller may not want to do it either because the truth is if you buy something from me with PayPal and you say you didn't get it, unless it's an item I ship to you in the mail and I can provide tracking information proving that not only did I mail it but you got it, PayPal will always side with the buyer and take the money back from the seller. Always. 100% of the time. That's why a lot of people don't want to take PayPal because if you're selling a software product, anything like that, any kind of digital product, PayPal doesn't give a shit that you can prove you did it. They just still give the money back, and you get screwed. So that's problem two. What you might be able to do, and I'm not sure about this, is you might be able to take a prepaid credit card and use it in a cryptocurrency machine. where you, It's like an ATM for cryptocurrency, and they send it to an address, Usually you have to use a phone number in conjunction with that. You can always use a burner phone, you know? So I think that would probably be your best way of getting cryptocurrency for cash, credit card, etc. without your name directly attached to it today would probably be a crypto ATM. That, that's probably the only way that's left or buying it from an individual or trading your goods and services for cryptocurrency, which is the best way to do it at all because, again, that's what cryptocurrency is really all about. So that wraps up our calls. I wanted to tell you a little bit more about the workshop, the project part of the workshop. So I mentioned kind of what the workshop's all about on Tuesday, the three different days. But let's just talk about day one, what I'm doing, why I'm doing, what makes it cool. I realize, dummy, you have a picture of this on graph paper. So I'll put, upload a PDF so you can look at it if you want to understand what I'm saying. But basically, I have a 12-foot by 12-foot square 
that's about 40 inches tall and, a cut, and like almost a foot into the ground that is a big, giant pond now. We call it the Big Miyagi. We call these ponds I build uh, with pond liners and timbers, 4x4s, Miyagis, because they really do look like something. If you remember Karate Kid from the 80s, the original one, that looks like it would be in Mr. Miyagi's backyard. So my buddy David came up with that term. What I wanted to do was create a garden around it that works like walls around a garden. But I don't want them to be too high. I want them to be about sitting height. So we're looking at about 24 to 30 inches from the ground height. That's high enough that it kind of creates this like Japanese-type um, environment. And then the other thing that it does, it's high enough off the ground that the ducks don't go in there and eat everything. Because that's, uh, you know, either I have to fence them out or I have to put the stuff high enough up. And then on top of it all, I live on a rock shelf. And where this pond is, is very, very shallow soil, even for me. So now I get, you know, 24 to 30 inches of soil to grow in. So these are going to be in right angles. And it just worked out really, really perfectly. That if you come five feet away from the corner and you make that the inside corner of these, these right angle garden beds, that you also end up five feet away all the way around. So you end up with a five foot path between the garden and the pond. And then if you cap rail the gardens, which we may not do for the project, but I may do eventually, you have like a seat. So you can sit and you've got benching. And each bed on the inside is an 8x8. Eight eight. On on, then on the outside, because the back side is bigger, again, you can look at the diagram if you want, it's 12x12. 12 12. Well, you take your 8-foot timbers, okay, and you cut them in half. And then on the front side, you just use them whole. And on the back side, you use one and a half to make each long run. And then you have your half of a timber makes your ends. So you end up with a bed that on the inside of a right angle, so now you're talking about like a 90-degree angle, you've got an 8 by 8 front, and then it goes 4 feet back to a 12 by 12 back. And basically you have two 8-foot, two 4 by 8 raised beds that are really attached to a 4 by 4, except it's all open. But that's really, imagine you made a 4 foot by 4 foot raised bed, and then you put wings on it that went 8 foot out in both directions. That's what you're ending up with here. And it's one cut to the timbers. So that's why I came up with the design. What that also does is it leaves exactly in the gap. So if you think each corner has one of these beds at right angle to it, then you have four openings. Each two beds makes an opening. That opening is exactly six feet. Okay, and I did all this on graph paper to make sure it all worked and sanity checked it. Well, if you take a 16-foot cattle panel, and you put it, Charlie's, Charlie's dream sleeping. Let me wake him up so he doesn't interview. Hey, bud, wake up. <laughs> That's Charlie's dream sleeping. Uh, anyway, so um, right where that six-foot gap is, if you take a 16-foot cattle panel and you put it in there like an arch, you get a perfectly straight-walled, nice high arch you can walk under. So each one of those gaps, those are four gaps, four cattle panels, and all you got to do is just once the, the, the beds are built, just pop them in there and hit them with a couple staple nails to hold them in place, and you've got these beautiful arches. So now you've got this 12-foot pond surrounded by four of these beautiful garden beds with arches over them, and we, of course, we, during the growing season, we can you know trellis crops over those arches. So now you walk into this space, and you've got this pond that's just turning out so beautiful, and you've got 16, 32, 64 feet of seating area. And then it's also growing food. 
and then just conventional irrigation. That's what we're going to build. And it's so simple. And I guarantee you, people that are like, I don't know if I'm going to build one of these ponds or not. You're going to come to this. You're going to see how it works. And people are going to build this. <laughs> Because once you realize what it does, it's just beauty. And if you live in a place where you can go down in the ground, you can lower the height of your pond. Because mine, you're kind of like looking up at the edge of the pond when you see, sit down. But if I could drop the pond or raise the beds, I'm just not going to raise the beds that high. Then you're looking into the pond from the seating area. What a cool thing. And then you're talking a ton of growing space. A massive amount of square footage. So that's more food than we can ever... That in the, in the aviary, which is going to become a herpiavery, I don't know, a herpetology cage. Now you'll have to come here to find out what that really means, unless you want to wait till it gets done next spring. Um, man, more food than I know what to do with, just from two systems. And so that's the project that we're going to build. And I think it'll be a lot of fun. And again, since it's not a real high work project, and we've done project builds here before, you guys know that have been here where we have, like we're doing plantings, and we have to break you up in like three groups, and people are spread out all over the place. This is one big, in the best way possible, a cluster F, Right. But it's not really a cluster F. It's just a cluster. Everybody in the same area. So people have time to network and learn and do something really cool at the same time. So that's the project. And again, if you want to be part of this and the other two days of just flat-out awesomeness. And again, I just want to reiterate, for those of you thinking about coming to one that never have, it seems like a lot of time and a lot of money to give up. 60%, 70% on average have been here before. And at least half have been here four or five times and keep coming back. You don't give up your time and money annually. You know, some of these people have been six years, six events. Some of them have been six years. We've done multiple events. We have people that have been here eight, nine times and keep coming back. You don't do that unless it's something really special. And this is one of those things when I started doing it, I thought it would be fun and maybe I could make a little side pocket money or something out of it. And it became something where I make a little bit of money, but I put most of it right back into the event. And it is just something I do because it builds community like nothing I've ever seen. It's one of the greatest blessings in my life. Not only will you meet me, but you'll meet 40 to 50 of the most awesome people you will ever meet. And I'm telling you, lifelong friendships have been forged at these workshops. So more info coming next week. Tickets go on sale Saturday. Be ready because I'm telling you, it's going to sell out and sell out hard. That brings us to the end of today's show, reminding you, There is a sale on MSB. You got to be MSB to come to an event. You really do. It just it doesn't happen any other way. Twenty five bucks. You get to keep the rate for life. The the discount code is give me twenty five. More information goes out every day in the Daily Mail about it. You got today. You got tomorrow. You got the weekend. And Monday it goes away like a fart in the wind. So if you want to be an MSB member and you get in stupid cheap, and twenty five bucks is stupid cheap. I mean I'm kind of stupid to sell that cheap, but I just felt like it was time to do something really nice for people. And to get people that aren't sure to give this damn thing a try. Remember, if you're ever not happy with MSB, tell me. I'll give you your money back. I have an unconditional money back guarantee. By the way, if you want to cancel, if you forgot about your renewal and it happened, don't go reporting me. Email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. I'll give you your money back. I have never turned down a refund for MSB except one clown that had been a member for eight years and wanted all his money back. I told him to go screw. I still gave him his most recent charge back even though it was 10 months old. But he was pissed off because I said something he didn't like. I thought, no, just, I'm not giving you nine years. Just go. 
You got you got butt hurt because I, I I condemned one of your favorite politicians. No, I'm not giving you. But any other request I've ever been asked for, I've given a hundred percent refund to anybody that's ever asked for it. So if you don't like it, tell me. I'll give you your twenty five bucks back. You can go your own way. With that, let's talk about our song of the day today. So today's song of the day is we get close to wrapping up Superman Song Week. These are all songs that are either about Superman or use Superman in the title or Superman in the lyrics or what have you. Um, today's song is just called Superman, and it's called uh, by Laszlo uh, Bain. It's a pretty old song. It's been around a while. It really, if I just say that, you might be, I don't know the song. You might, it might ring true to you, and you might be like, I, I think I know that song if I give you what I think it really should be called. It should be really called I'm No Superman. That's the lyric in it. And so now you might be like, maybe, kind of, yeah, I don't know. If you were a fan of the TV show Scrubs, then you know this song is the song that was used to introduce um, the show. It was like the theme song coming into it. And it was used in the opening credits of Scrubs after being recommended about to the show by leading actor Zach Braff. And uh, for those that are wondering who Zach Braff is, he's just awesome. He's the young, idealistic doctor in the sitcom Scrubs that uh, you know starts out the show as a complete greenhorn intern. And he, he's a great actor. He really is. And he did a great job in that show. And apparently he liked this song and thought, hey, this would make a good theme song for what we're doing here. And uh, it really fits his character uh, in, in the show as well as you know, not really being able to do everything on his own. And this song is a departure from what we've been really talking about with Superman songs this week. We've talked a lot about how everybody is a Superman to somebody, right? And that, you know, there are people that do more and, and, and help others and do so without asking for a return and in some way or another being Superman. But we've also talked about, you know, Superman having the right to bleed and things like that. And that everybody that kind of is a Superman to somebody also has weaknesses and what have you. I think one of the places we really get into trouble is not other people seeing us as a Superman, but us seeing ourselves as needing to be. And not realizing that at times we need help from other people. And it could be an incredibly limited thing in your, limiting thing in your life if you won't take help from other people, if you won't lean on other people, if you won't let other people help you when they want to. And that's really what this song is all about. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Tune in tomorrow as we'll round out the week where I'm calling an audible. Yeah, I'm going away from John Adams' Superman songs. I got my own song about Superman. Not in the title, but definitely features through the whole song. And it's just a badass jam to end a Friday on. What is it? What is it? Will Jack tell us? No, I'll tell you tomorrow. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Just in time, head down the 405, gotta meet the new boss by 8 a.m. The phone rings in the car, the wife is working hard, she's running late tonight again. Well, I know what I've been told, you gotta work to feed the soul.
Superman. 